0: to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Uh, The July 4th weekend just passed. I hope everyone had a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. Um, You know, this week, the FBI announced that Hillary Clinton will not be facing any charges. Obviously, a lot of people are upset by that. And, you know, I personally, I think... You know, I'm not an expert on the law, so I'm not going to comment exactly on, you know, what she should be charged with, anything like that. But I will say that I'm not pleased with either uh, options for president of the United States, um, you know, but we'll see, who, you know, whoever gets elected, I, I do hope that they do a good job, you know, because that will improve the quality of life for the rest of the country. So for this uh, podcast. I I conducted two separate interviews. Uh, The first interview I conducted with T, and T is a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman with the Marine Special Operations Command, uh, also known as a SARC. Uh, So SARCs are basically the uh, Marine Special Operations medics, corpsmans, and... You know, from what we were discussing, not too many people are familiar with Sarks and things like that. So I thought it would be interesting uh to have a Sark on for you guys and him and another Sark, they created a company called Crow Medical. And they are in the beginning stages of setting up uh medical gear for the advanced uh medical provider. And it's all interesting stuff. So I have that interview, and then after that, I'm going to play an interview for you guys where I had on three former Army Rangers uh, by the names of Paul Martinez, James Webb, and Chance Davis, and they run a podcast called The Choke Point, and uh, all three of them were in the uh, 3rd Battalion in the 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, a couple of rotations, and um It was a good interview. It was a great interview. I enjoyed it. So we'll get into the interview with T to start. And then afterwards I'll play the interview with the Rangers from the choke point. Hey, what's going on guys? Um, you know, this is the 4th of July weekend. Uh, I just want to wish everybody a safe and happy 4th of July. Uh, for today's episode, Um, I have T on, and T is a Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman with the Marine Special Operations Command. Uh, They're also known as SARCs, and uh, we haven't had much of a Marine or Navy presence on the show, so T, uh, thank you for coming on, man. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I'm a fan of the show. Absolutely.
0: Oh, cool, man. So... So let's let's talk about SARCs. Um, I you know, I, obviously within the military and special operations specifically people know about you guys, but outside of the military I think uh Sarks aren't very well known. Um, and the it's it's kind of it's kind of unusual in terms of this the way that you are actually in the Navy, but you're working with the Marine Corps Special Operations Command. Um, so can you explain a little bit about how that works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely not very well known. I think in recent years, we've become a little bit more well known as far as people coming, joining the Navy off the street, wanting to be a SARC. Um, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing sometimes for people to, to grasp if they're not familiar with the community. But Kind of bottom line up front, we're very, very similar to Army uh, SF-18 Deltas. In fact, part of our pipeline is their Special Forces Medical Sergeant course, um, which in the Navy is simply called the Special Operations Combat Medic course and then the Special Operations and Independent Duty Corpsman course. So basically, SARC is, uh, like you said, Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman. We, regular hospital corpsmen, which is what the medics in the Navy are called, and the Marine Corps, um, back in the day, basically, Geneva Convention wouldn't allow medics to carry weapons, so the Marine Corps had uh, self-identified with every Marine was a rifleman, so it kind of excluded them from having uh, any kind of medical uh, background. I mean, that goes it goes back further than that to the Revolutionary War, but um, to the inception of the Marine Corps, really, but the medics always came from the Navy. Um, so when recon battalion and force recon was stood up within, um, within the Marine Corps and even back to the old Marine Raider uh, battalions from world war two, they took their Navy corpsman with them. Um, as the recon communities evolved, it was identified kind of what the minimum skills needed for a SARC would be, or for a corpsman up there would be. Um, and so over time, a pipeline and uh, selection process was formalized. We became our own uh, MOS basically within the Navy. Uh, we're still hospital corner, but it's like it's a subspecialty of that. Um, and now we have our own pipeline of schools. And when Marsoc was stood up um, in 2006, they took the, the SARCs from force uh, Force Recon and moved them up there to become Marsoc uh, medics basically. So there's really no difference between Sarks at Recon Battalion, Force Recon, and MARSOC, other than um, the commands they fall under. Um, there's no difference as far as the training, the initial training we receive, I should say. Um, so I mean, if you want to get into the pipeline a little bit, I can talk about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, um, so before we get into the pipeline, let's can we talk a little bit about you? Give your background a little bit, and then we'll just get into that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been in the Navy about 12 years. Uh, I spent, when I came in, I had no idea what a SARC was. It wasn't very marketed. Um, spent three or four years in the conventional Navy with the Marine Corps. Um, and then I had a couple of buddies who had heard about the SARC thing and were going through the pipeline. And so from talking to them, I got interested. F- had done some other training on the side, uh, some trauma training on the side and everything, and, and realized that I really loved trauma. But what I liked about it was um, the challenge, but then also the, the what I liked about the SARC community was the potential to practice medicine in an austere environment, um, very autonomously. Um, from what my buddies were telling me, you'd be basically the only medic on the ground taking care of these Marines, and that you're trained to the highest level of military medicine possible for an enlisted guy. So I was, I was pretty hooked. Um, so I went in the pipeline and it took me about a year and a half. Um, by the time I got through all the schools, the schools never really line up right for anybody. So there's always some, some delay between schools. Um, and then I went straight to MARSOC, which is kind of unusual. Sometimes depending on the luck of the draw, the SARCs might go to recon battalion for a few years, and then go to MARSOC, or they might just go straight to MARSOC. Um, and so that's that's kind of my background on that.
0: Wait, so you you go through your training for as a SARC, and then you go straight into either Recon Battalion or MARSOC. Do you have to go through their selection process or no?
1: No. So at this time, there's a lot of talk about that, but at this time, it, we don't. So we it, it's we get orders to one place or the other. We don't go through the CSO, uh, which is Critical Skills Operator, which is what a MARSOC operator is. We don't go through their selection and uh individual training course what we go through is essentially what force recon selection process is um because that's how we started so you know change in the military is slow and because that's how we started and funding was set up that way that's what we've continued to um continue to do all
0: right so the MARSOC community started, well, the Marsocks Marine Special Operations Command uh, officially stood up in 2006, correct? Now, since then, they've come a long way in terms of, um, you know, h- how much they're used or how much they're deployed. And I know, I think it was last year, uh, a Mar- MARSOC officers were selected to head the uh, Special Operations Command. Uh, command that was uh deployed to iraq uh there was an article out i think by military times about that um and you know and and that was done within a short period of time you know 10 years is is not a very long time but right you know moving at the speed of war uh things change rapidly uh so can you talk a little bit about the history of morsak
1: yeah absolutely um you know i'm slightly Narrow focus, I should say. I guess in my uh, comparison to other soft units in that I've worked with um, all of them, but I obviously never belonged to any of them except Marsock. Um, but I do feel like we've come a long way in ten years. Um, growth is hard, and you know, there's always growing pains in any organization. But I think that the the growing pains we've experienced are less than some of these other communities, simply because one thing I think we do great at is we look out to the other communities histories and we pull their experts in to help us get through these growing pains instead of trying to figure them out ourselves. So, uh, like you said, MARSOC was established back in 2006. And at the time, uh, in order to fill their, their billets, their teams, they took, uh, the force recon from first and second battalions over on, you know, the West and East coast respectively and made them the first MARSOC teams. Um, and then, of course, with that, they, the SARCs that were part of Force Recon at that time got rolled over. Um, since that time, uh, the, hiss, it, the organization's been a little more formalized, um, and, uh, and and we've been it ten years—well, really fourteen years of war now total—but uh, ten years of war that, that Marslock's been a part of. It's it, you know, it's kind of a rough way to start, but I think. Um, I think that's also helped accelerate the growth of the community and, and really formalize and establish it, uh, into what it is.
0: Right. It's like you guys are, you know, thrown into the fire, so to speak, and you know, that'll force you to grow up real fast, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So aside from, you know, the history of Marsak, I know that you and some other guys are working on some medical gear and medical equipment and what you felt was the need for the advanced medical care provider. Um, you know, and and this is separate from MARSOC. This is you guys working this on, on your own. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, out of the 14 years of war, a lot of things medically have happened. I mean, of course, war accelerates medical advances faster than peacetime, uh, just on a whole, uh, because of the nature of it. But, you know, this, these two wars, especially with the advent of the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee and protocols, and taking best practices and evidence based medicine and distilling it down to the lowest common level, which would be the, the conventional frontline medic um, or corpsman. And with those advances, obviously, a lot of things have changed prior to the um, – before the war. I, I heard your one of your other podcasts with, uh, I think, Jay on who was going through the history of the TCCC and how it started and pre-hospital care before that yeah. um, a little bit. Um, so kind of bridging off that, you know, TCCC came along. We identified the leading causes of death on the battlefield. Here's how we uh, stopped the bleeding. Uh, tension pneumothorax is building up and, uh, here's how we treat those chest injuries. And a lot of, you know, the, the preventable deaths have gone down drastically, uh, with these protocols coming out, um, and with better body armor, stuff like that. Well, what has happened is, you know, after all these medics have spent 20 years, most of them, uh, soft medics and they're getting out now and they're bringing these practices into the medical industry as well as, um, all the lessons learned from these really advanced care concepts of damage control resuscitation, um, are starting to come out and well, they've they've been out for a couple of years, but what's really starting to happen is they're starting to really push this down to a low level. Um, just like they did with tourniquets and hemostatic gauze, like quick clot, um, back toward the beginning of the, of the wars, you know, they're starting to push stuff like whole blood transfusions and, um, Freeze-dried plasma and this other things down to this lower level that are common in surgical suites um, toward the rear of the fighting, if as much as there's a front line anymore. So, what me and uh, another guy have identified, really, is the fact that all these protocols are coming out now uh, for the advanced provider, the the soft medic, that are calling on us to do a lot of advanced things where the component of our aid bag I was talking to another guy the other day actually about this about how our aid bags now look nothing like they did five six years ago because back then it was all bleeding control uh some needles for needle decompressions and some airway stuff and you know maybe some iv fluid for shock but that was it and nowadays um it's a lot more advanced tools and those basics still need to be there so What's happening is, you know, these these kits that are coming out for these advanced procedures, they're not necessarily unrealistic, but they're not as efficient as they could be. I mean, they're bigger, they're bulkier. Um, usually, they contain a lot more components than what's truly needed to perform these advanced procedures. And so, soft medics are having to fight for space in their aid bags, and really think long and hard about what they're packing and what they're not packing. And, and times make it potentially tough decisions that could have long-lasting effects. So what we're trying to do here is, is really develop this ultralight trauma gear with initially a focus on the advanced provider, um, but trying to get the soft medic and these advanced providers that might have to do stuff out of a very small package um, that have competing weight requirements for other gear uh, that's common on, in a special operations team that's not medically focused and get them the best tools possible to allow them to perform to their level of training, which oftentimes eclipses the the type of gear that we get, basically.
0: And this stuff is specifically initially designed for guys who are on deployment versus, like, uh, you know, someone at home or that type of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the civilian industry has a lot of kits about everything. And uh, but they're typically plastic trays. All everything's disposable. It's all sterile. Um, you know, it's designed to be laid at the bedside or on a stand next to the bedside so the doctor can work out of it. Um, and what typically happens is, like chest tube kit, for instance, I'll use that as an example. The, you know, they have trays in the hospital. Somebody takes all the components in that tray and puts them in a plastic bag. That, you know, just to sterile or they find out, hey, here's how they're taught to do chest tubes in a school environment. Um, and we'll get that packing list and we'll put all that stuff in a bag. Well, like anything in any profession, you know, it's taught one way at a school. But once you get out in the real world, and you really start doing it. There's a much more efficient way of doing it, uh, usually involving a lot less supplies or maybe different supplies. And that's really what we're trying to focus on is how are guys currently doing these procedures and what equipment do they currently need and making those kits so that you're not opening up a kit with – Thirty-five items in it, and you may need four of them. Now, those thirty-five items have to go somewhere because they can't just be left around. If you're in the back of a helo at night, you know that's potentially dangerous for the whole helicopter. Um, if you're on a target, you don't want to leave that behind as you know target indicators or anything like that either. So, so that's uh, so it's definitely marketed for the the deployed environment. Absolutely.
0: And what is the name of the company?
1: So Crow Medical Gear. Uh, it's kind of a play on cro uh medicine evolved beyond uh, the rudimentary level.
0: And that's Cro, that's C-R-O, right?
1: Yeah, right. CroMedicalGear.com is the website. Uh, and people can go there for, uh, they can request access for email updates uh, for, for products.
0: And do you guys have a timeline on, on when the products are going to come out? Yeah, we're we're currently
1: finalizing uh, a chest tube kit right now and we're hoping to launch in early 2017 um hoping to launch the product line and that's again uh if you request access to email updates the email updates about the it's called the jackson chest tube kit uh will come out for that and then from there we're looking to you know expand the product line it, essentially what gaps there are now kind of on the principles i talked about before
0: And you guys also are on social media as well, right?
1: Yeah. On Instagram, uh, we have the handle of soft medicine. Um, And then there's a, there's a t-shirt campaign right now too. We're trying to fund some research and development for a junctional tourniquet. Um, And that address is linked in the Instagram uh, soft medicine page
0: as well. Okay. Yeah. I saw you guys were posting um, some of the, these t-shirts that you were selling. Um, so it's the fun. What is the tourniquet? What kind of tourniquet is that?
1: Yeah. So, um, you're familiar with normal tourniquets, cat tourniquets, soft uh, T tourniquets, uh, these great, great t- products. Um, well, what they've kind of, what has naturally happened and being so good with bleeding control and tourniquet use now is the next, uh, deadliest injury on the battlefield really is this, what's called junctional hemorrhage, which means, it's hemorrhage in, you know, the upper hip area, upper groin area, armpit kind of neck area where you can't get a tourniquet on it, and it may be, you know, a bullet track or a piece of shrapnel or an explosion might create this vastly cavernous wound where it would take a lot of quick clot gauze and anatomically it's not very amenable to uh, pressure dressings and things like that. So uh, several, it's been the leading focus kind of with uh, several companies releasing junctional tourniquets, and simply what they are is they don't really resemble a a traditional tourniquet like most of the listeners probably are familiar with. It's, um, they're just devices to occlude those blood, the big blood vessels that are running into that area. So for instance, on the hips you're trying to occlude the, the descending aorta maybe, or the femoral artery high up because there's no way to occlude it really at the point of at where the wounds at. So, um, this is another one of those areas where the devices that are out there, um, they do work and, Uh, I'm not trying to bash them at all, but, but they're big, they're bulky. And when we're competing space in our a bag for something, you know, we've got blood transfusion kits and and advanced drugs and all this other stuff. That's Absolutely. An essential piece of gear. However, we're trying to figure out a way to make it lighter, smaller, and, and just as, if not more effective than what's currently out there.
0: Yeah. You know, that's pretty interesting. I always wondered about that, like, so if you know, if you're, let's say, you have a a bullet wound, you know, below your knee, you would tie the tourniquet uh, above that, above the sure. wound. Sure. But then I always wondered, like, what what would you do if you know you get hit in the hip or something like that, where you can't exactly just kind of tie it around there. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, at the, bleeding control is one of those things that all these devices out there are great tourniquets, quick clot, gauze, uh, they're all, but, but at the end of the day, and they're all extremely effective and helpful, but at the end of the day, they're just adjuncts. There's almost no bleeding in the body, no vessel in the body, I should say, except maybe the aorta right around the heart that you can't stop with a finger or maybe two fingers of pressure, um, as long as provided that you can find that vessel. Um, and so, you know, those areas up there, um, a hand will stop it. You know, I think uh, I think learning quick clot, uh, especially because it's an extremely effective product and learning tourniquet use and all these other pa- methods of packing wounds, extremely, extremely helpful. But at the end of the day, uh, simple finger pressure, hand pressure will work. I mean, there's that picture that uh, in the Boston bombing, um, they're pushing a guy out in the wheelchair and there's a guy running beside him with a cowboy hat on, I believe, and he's holding the guy's artery in his hand. Uh, you know, that's, that's hemorrhage control. You've got it. You know, at that point, you've got time to pack it, to put a tourniquet on, put a junction on, and it, etc. It's just what gets complicated uh, is when you either can't find that bleed because it's at night, or the patient's moving too much to let you find it, or you're under fire, um, or if the anatomy is just so grossly destroyed, uh, similar to like what would happen in a blast wound, that there's really not one thing you can put a finger on. You know what I mean? There's a bunch of stuff that you can, that you need to stop. And at that point, that's wh- exactly where a junctional tourniquet is designed for is, Hey, let's go above that, above the wound to where, you know, there's one artery feeding these vessels and let's clamp that off.
0: Yeah. That's all very interesting stuff. And, you know, as you know, I had uh, Jay Paisley on the last episode from the crisis application. <laughs> yeah. Team. Um, and, you know, just from him talking, he really had my mind going on the possibilities of, you know, how much awareness we can raise for certain things and um you know, I, I would have I would like to get you guys back on and we can continue this discussion on, you know, med- yeah, absolutely. medical products and uh things that people can do, uh like average civilians can do in a trauma type situation, uh which is you know, people don't have this kind of information, but some of it is very basic on things that they can do that will save somebody's life. Uh, sure. but, you know, before an EMT gets there or something like that. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. No, I, I would, I would love to. Um, and that's you know, and eventually that's where we want to take this uh, this crow medical gear is. You know, the advanced provider is our focus right now because that's who we are. But at the end of the day, like you said, you know, these shootings are happening more and more often. That the lay public needs this this type of equipment and this type of training. Uh, really just as much, you know, as we do. So uh, that's that's hopefully where we're going to move to in the future.
0: Yeah, so T-Man, I just want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I know you're pretty busy and, uh, you know, w- working with uh, your military stuff and you guys are trying to develop this on the side, um, you know, and it it being 4th of July weekend, I'm sure you got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: I appreciate it. Absolutely.
0: Not, no problem. So uh, once again, can you drop the handles of the website and the social yeah. media?
1: Yeah. So if you go to crowmedicalgear.com, it's C-R-O, medical gear. Um, it'll bring up a, a basically a page where you can enter your email address and some information. And from that, you'll get email updates about uh, the Jackson Jester kit, which is going to be the first product. Again, hopefully launching in early 2017. Um, and then Instagram, Soft Medicine. Uh, in there is a link to the tspring slash uh, store softmedicine uh where we're doing currently doing a t-shirt campaign again to raise uh, funds to for R&D of a a lighter um, smaller junctional tourniquet that's just as effective.
0: All right, awesome. Thank you, man.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.
0: You know, I'm starting to realize, you know, how important it is to have these basic skills uh, such as learning, uh, basic, uh, trauma management, you know, things like how to tie a tourniquet, that sort of thing. And I think it's very interesting and, um, you know, you can look forward to hearing more from the guys from Crow Medical Gear and, and from other places, uh, other former medics and things like that. And, um, now we'll get into the interview with the Rangers from the Choke Point podcast. What's up, guys? Uh, for this episode, for this interview, I have Chance Davis, former Army Rangers Chance Davis and Paul Martinez on the show, and these guys also host a podcast called The Choke Point Podcast. Guys, how's it going? How's it going? It's good, man. man. Uh, so how was your 4th of July weekend? You guys do anything?
2: Not too much. pretty low-key. One of the benefits of farming is that you get to kind of pick your own schedule. You don't really do weekends and stuff like that. You might have a weekend in the middle of the week because you got weather or whatever. So we kind of just took the day off and sat on our asses.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty low low key here in Colorado. I went to Buena Vista to Whitewater Raft, the Arkansas River for most of the day and then watched fireworks in a local park. It
0: was pretty good. Nice. Yeah, I didn't I had a pretty chill day myself. Um, that's interesting. You you guys are farmers, or you guys farm? Yeah, uh,
4: we farm beef cattle here in Virginia. Uh, it's a pretty nice peaceful place to kind of get your mind off stuff we used to do. And right now, Paul and I have seventy head of cattle, and uh, about four hundred acres we lease. So we cut hay, uh, feed our cows, and uh, we use our horses to catch them up and go on trail rides and kind of find a life after the military is a good life. So
0: I'm stuck. Right. That's awesome.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's been real good.
2: Uh, so the way it kind of worked out, I'd come to visit James Webb up here in Virginia. He got hit by a drunk driver on his motorcycle and got medically retired. I had, I stayed in, uh, we kind of st- He was like my connection to, you know, real life. And I was kind of his connection back to the regiment since he got cut down so young. And I came up was, you know how it is. You're not in a great spot when you're deploying all the time. And James taught me about horses. And then he taught me about cows. And before I knew it, it was kind of like "This, this is one of those things that just makes sense. I can center my mind. I can focus. It's as important to me as all the shit I did in the military. So, you know, we got real fortunate he was able to set that up for us for when I got out of military years later. so.
0: And you guys were all in the same battalion in Ranger Regiment?
2: Yeah, we were in 3rd Ranger
4: Battalion.
0: Nice. Okay, so you guys were, you guys met in the Ranger Battalion, or you met afterwards?
2: No, we went, met while we were in. James and I were in the same platoon when we came into Rangers. We deployed together a little bit, and then chance and i linked up a few years later in 2011 i believe yeah uh, part of a special task force and you know i was a sniper chance was a medic and kind of your those are kind of your oddballs in a, in a platoon sometimes so we we got along and, and made a connection Then after the military chance kind of helped me stay on the path and I, I think chance will tell you i probably did the same thing for him i don't really know how so
3: yeah we were just talking about it uh not too long ago, it was about a year ago, I was just working a, a really hectic job and things were getting too much and uh, went down to see them at the farm and it, it just completely changed things for me. I mean, before that, I was drinking a, a bit more than I should and kind of not being as social as I could be and a year later, like I'm back in the gym, I'm competing in uh, shooting events and uh, going down to see them at the cattle operation was
0: kind of a life changer for me so yeah that's interesting so the farming kind of helped you guys find yourself after the military
4: very much so yeah there's a lot of similarities i ended up finding uh you know i got cut down i only did two deployments these guys did like six and seven and the whole time i'm sitting here uh I heard a bunch of my buddies that I did deploy with, my two I was on the team with, they got smoked right in the chest, you know? And it's like, so in my head, I'm thinking about that all the time, but I get my mind off it with this cattle operation. And uh, you're going out there, you're working hard still. You find this sense of community with these, like with this old farmer, like he uh, took me under his wing and he lost his brother and his father on the farm. So he kind of like could connect with like a veteran who'd seen a bunch of, you know, blood and shit. And uh, so through the farming, you know, you're working with these animals. They're huge as shit. They can run you over, kill you, but at the same time, a very peaceful state. Once you're doing it the right way, you know, you gotta learn like just kind of how to act and uh, relating to like military stuff. You know, it like teaches you how to kind of just find something else. You know, besides thinking about doing raids and running BPs and squirter chases and you know, all that really, really, really awesome shit, you know, that you gotta kinda find something else to talk about when you get out, and uh, you know, this is interesting as shit, you know, you're raising food for everyone now, too, you go from soldier to farmer, to kinda makes sense, and being a cowboy is fun, man, it's cool, so uh, you know, with us being hurt, too, you're like doing something that's uh, you know, hard, you can be proud of, and you're not like some uh, pity case or something like that you know you're still man contributing
0: yeah farming isn't easy I know that's that's difficult work you know uh, it's like labor intensive you know you're out in the sun all day um so guys can we uh can we kind of share uh, your stories in terms of like what you were doing before the military and then what led you into the military and then what led you into the ranger regiment and now uh, I guess you guys can just take turns
4: um well i guess i'll start um yeah go ahead so coming from here where we're farming now my hometown of madison i was just like an athlete uh football wrestling track and all of a sudden 9-11 happened when i was a freshman so like all through high school i kind of pretty much knew like you know i gotta go fight i'm thinking there's americans over there fighting i need to go contribute and do something about it and uh I had an older brother that was at west point and uh You know, he graduated, and he's still in, and uh, so I enlisted right out of high school. I didn't have grades to go directly in anyway, but uh, I wanted to go get into the fight, and so I went to be an infantryman, and then basic training, you know, you start singing all these cadences about airborne and so I started asking about that, and didn't have a contract. I graduated, I was supposed to get a, like, second ID, and I ended up just, like, walking over to the Ranger Regiment S-6 and asking for a RIP contract, and... The guy dropped me and had me do, like, push-ups until I did about, like, 180 and told me to recover. And he asked me what my two-mile time was, and he's like, all right, here's your contract. Good luck. And uh, So that's how I got into the regiment. And uh, ended up doing, like, a little break in service in the regiment because I ended up getting (laughs) accepted to West Point later with a nomination from the Army. I was, like, an honor graduate in basic training. And uh, so I went and did that for about six but just felt like that need to get back to the regiment. So I went back to rip again. And then that's when I linked up with Paul and, uh, you know, went on my first appointment, then uh, second appointment worked a lot with dogs and sniper security. So that kind of works out with like Paul ended up being the sniper. Like we still have that connection too. And, uh, you know, from there I got smoked by that drunk driver. What would have been my third appointment? It was like a couple weeks before that. And Paul was there. Uh, riding motorcycle right behind me. I uh, saw the whole thing. And, uh, you know, my leg was going to be amputated and all that. Paul wasn't there. They would have taken it, you know. I was like, don't let him take it. And uh, they were trying to get me a sign of paperwork and everything. And he was there, man, Ranger buddy, at my back. And uh, he got me home, back to Virginia. And then from there, it was just, you know, trying to find out what's going on, you know, while I'm out of the fight.
0: And what year was that where you got hit by that driver?
4: Uh, it was January 27th, 2009. And so I ended up going to the Warrior Transition Battalion from there. And uh, nine reconstruction reconstructive surgeries. And, you know, here I am, the best I can get so far. But uh, I've come a long way.
0: Yeah, well, you know, that's always, um, you know, drink, drunk driving sucks, man. But. It's good to hear that you you feel like you found your purpose and that you're you're working hard again. You know that's awesome to hear.
4: Yeah, thank you, man. That was uh, yeah, that was like one of those uh, you know, spiritual fights. I guess you know you just get. I was like a professional athlete as a Ranger, and then you know you lost your identity when you get hurt. And uh, like I said, this farming, new identity. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome.
2: And uh, I guess, Paul, you want to go? Yeah, so I grew up in Colorado. I was raised by a single mom, so me and my brother were kind of closer than a lot of brothers, maybe. And he ended up joining the Marine Corps, and I was supposed to go with him, but I was high school dropout, so they said he, I had to go to the Army. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to be a Marine, <laughs> uh, which I did. I got an airborne contract. I was in airborne school with orders to Italy thinking, man, I'm going to have the the best career. I got this cool duty station. I'm going to go see Europe and go fight for my country. And this will be great. I made the mistake of going to a ranger brief in airborne school. And I don't remember who he was, but some salty tough motherfucker with tan beret pointed his finger at me and looked at me with his steely blue eyes. and was like, do you want to be the best? Or do you want to go to Italy? And you know, seven years later, I was still in Fort Benning doing the ranger thing. Uh, probably the best choice I ever made. Although if you caught me on the wrong ruck march, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> uh, so I did six deployments with third battalion. Um, you know, I met up with, with James, like he said, when he was coming back from, the, um, the prep school and I met up with chance, uh, my fifth deployment and, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a little bit of luck and a, and a lot of drive. I knew that I wanted to to join the military. I wanted to go fight. I didn't care how I got there, you know, just send me to combat. And, uh, you know, my ultimate goal, if it was at all possible, was to be a sniper. i wanted to do that since I was a little kid. I finally got the opportunity. uh, After I got PRK, you know, I didn't have my stupid BCG glasses. I had my cool robot army eyes. (laughs) Went to sniper school. Went to a Special Forces Sniper Course. Ended up teaching there later. Uh, you know, I did real well. Yeah, second, I was the second place winner of the 2010 U.S.S.O.C. Sniper Competition.
0: Um, oh, awesome!
2: Yeah, thanks, man. That's uh, I had a real good teammate named Stuart Adcock, and yeah, he did a lot of the work. Yeah, he, he was real experienced, so I got lucky there, and um, that kind of ensured that I would be on whatever task force. Uh, 375 was deploying i could kind of pick you know because uh, i had a pretty good reputation and i could kind of choose where i went so we picked uh the task force chance was on and it ended up being seven months of suicide missions and doing things that i don't know if any rangers ever done uh you know but we made it through we brought everybody home and you know now i'm doing this uh i got out of the military i, I was gonna go shoot And instruct people and, you know, do the normal ex-army guy where you contract and, you know, stack cash. And I was drinking more than, you know, more than you should. I came to Virginia to kind of get settled a little bit and spend some time with James finally. And he said, you know, I set up this business. You can have a stake in it. We'll be partners. And if you want it, give it a shot. If you don't like it after a little bit, you can take off. So, that was almost two years ago now. And, you know, it just makes sense. I can, I can have any of my ranger buddies out on the weekends. We can put them on a horse or a four wheeler in a jeep. We can take them up the mountains and we can fucking go to church, man. Like that's we can get settled, get out in the woods. We can break bread. We can make a big bonfire and have whiskey. And like that's more important to me than just about anything else is being able to do that. So lifestyle you know, lifestyle's a little different, but I work every day real hard with my fucking best friend you know and fellow ranger we make good food we put that into the supply chain we're giving back to our community i feel like we work with you know the older farmers in our community so we've got you get that feeling of mentorship that you had from the military you know and then just being around the animals has been real good for me so you know it just made it made perfect sense like i could go out work for work for the man or work for some money and you know think about all the things i wanted to do for my friends or with my friends from the military but you know this way i actually get to do something about it it's kind of like they didn't have the job i wanted so me and james and chance are making it happen yeah, that's that's my story
0: yeah, well, that that's the way to do it man you know like if, if maybe if you feel like you know opportunity isn't there you just got to go out and make it happen man and um you know, it's it's great to hear that you guys were able to do that and are continuing to do that. Um, you know, and so you guys also chance before we get into your story. You guys also do some outreach work for veterans.
2: Yeah, we're we're trying to find our footing with that. This is our pilot year for a few programs, so uh, it's pretty easy to get guys that will uh, volunteer a raft and a guy to paddle it, or guys that will do something like that let you use a shooting range or whatever but we don't really like the idea of you know you're taking donations you have this massive bank account or floating sums of cash and all this overhead we, we think that you know just come out yeah it should be pay, pay to play and when you're done playing like you don't have to pay anymore and, and you're not so we're, we're trying to find a find how to structure that but right now we just do you know rangers we try to stay in contact with as much of our as many of our buddies as we can we bring them out you know in small groups or one at a time just you know for a weekend getaway it's kind of all we can uh do right now but this year we'll start the trail rides um we're doing one this weekend and then uh, chance has got a uh, some whitewater rafting trips that he's trying to get put together so uh, and then he he can tell you a little bit more about like the shooting school and stuff like that. So I don't know if you want to take it from here, Chance. It's kind of yeah, baby. Um,
3: I mean, the the programs that we started, the thing that pretty much saved me when I was making poor decisions and drinking too much and then come came down to the farm to hang out in that community, that brotherhood, uh, that that was the difference maker for me. And there's constantly uh, programs trying to raise, raise awareness for veteran suicide. And I just felt like – all the fluff and smoke and mirrors, we could probably do a little without that and just find events where we can get veterans together, get them out of the house. If they're drinking, drink with a buddy, not by yourself alone. Um, so we're, we're starting up a shooting team where we can be sponsored by veteran-owned companies and support them while they mutually support us, providing low cost competitive safe shooting for veterans to be amongst like minded people and really step out of their uh, their comfort zones and then uh yeah white water raft and just any kind of outdoors active adventurous thing that 's what we 're really looking to do is just get veterans together um, and, yeah.
2: and also the people. You know, these guys that have have rafts, these guys that have shooting ranges, these guys that have, you know, fun stuff that vets like to do, they want a way to do that. But it's it's not as simple as just saying, hey, I have this resource you can use, come and use it because, you know, one, that costs them money. So they, they got to get some kind of tax incentive or a charitable donation incentive like that. So we have to structure that properly. And then, you know, so our, our goal is to bypass all that red tape. You know, if you've got the resources We'll get you the vets if you've got a good cause you know we'll put out the call we'll try and try and get volunteers and you know it, it's not like hey we're going to do all these things for our veteran community it's like okay we can accomplish these things for our veteran community if we network the right way and if we become a hub
4: for resources so that's kind of the yeah that's yeah. the idea it's the choke point yeah you know, basically just putting out a list saying you guys want to come all right show up here with this much money this is what happens.
2: And also it gives people an outlet to donate. You know, if you can if you can look at a, at what you're paying for, uh, uh, for instance, a rafting trip on you know, a date in July for these this many guys, and you know that's gonna happen. And we put up content on you know the choke point to prove that it happened, like that's how we think that veterans organizations should be run. That's how we think the charity in the United States should be run, it should be transparent. It should be pay as you play. You shouldn't have to have these massive this massive overhead or this massive need for all this money just to help somebody out, just to get somebody on a raft or get somebody out in the woods with their buddies. So hopefully we can we can make that change or, or at least uh you know make, make it some influence our sphere, you know.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. Before before we finish up, um, you know, when we're done with the interview I would like you guys to list your point of contact. So anyone who's interested in contributing in any way, whether it be a someone who has a venue or anything like that, they can reach out to you guys and, um, you know, maybe work something out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: we're we're, we're going to run everything through the choke point, right, Chance?
0: Yep. The website's up and
3: running. So, yeah, we'll, we'll put that at the end.
0: So, Chance, can you, can you tell your story of before the military and then what led you into it?
3: Uh, So before the military, I was kind of a troubled youth, uh, single-parent home. Uh, Dad left at three months, group homes and foster care for most of the the childhood. And uh, then I decided to go to college, and my mom didn't support that decision, and my dad wasn't involved. Worked three jobs, fighting amateur fights. Um, Doing college just was too much. So I went to the recruiter. I saw a ranger. Um, he was like the epitome of what I wanted to be, so I sat down with him, and two weeks later shipped out. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the military, so uh, at the recruiting station, just kind of did any, mini, money, mo, and ended up being a combat medic. Didn't know what that meant, um, so I was kind of hesitant at first. But I went to basic training and like fell in love day one. Um, ended up getting the top PT score in my company, uh, so they offered me a Ranger contract. And from then on, like I was kind of that weirdo that sat in the barracks and during fire watch was breaking apart the 240 and trying to memorize the grains and the, the fragmentation grenades. And they, <laughs> I guess they liked that. And I just wanted to be around the smallest group of people. So all the people that like cheated and didn't push as hard as they could, I just steered away from them. Got to battalion. Um, and then right after that, they send all the medics to special operations medical school, there was a big holdover for that. So the top PT t- scores out of Ranger and Doc got to go to Ranger school. So finished RIP, went to Ranger school, came back, was kind of um, went to SOCOM, got to regiment. And it was kind of the cherry because usually you have to deploy once and then go to uh, do a train up and then go to Ranger school. So I lucked out there. Took over a, a company of, of medics, trained them up in Iraq. It was a good kind of warm-up deployment but everybody after that was kind of itchy to get their fight on. Um, So we trained hard that that next training cycle and really made a point to be the best company in the battalion. And we got this awesome mission. And the thing that I remember most about it is it was flawless. Like being a medic, most people think, you know, that you're covered in blood and you've seen a lot of casualties. But for me – I'm glad. Like, we didn't have any injuries on that deployment. We took the fight to the enemy perfectly. Like, everybody was the best at their jobs. And to watch how fluid each mission was, was a once le- in a lifetime experience. Um, so I left from that deployment. I got out for a marriage, went to a police academy. Things didn't work out. So I did the normal thing and started contracting. Did that for, uh, about three years in the, uh Kandahar uh, area and then that contract closed so I came back to the states kind of bounced around for a little bit and then for the last two years was in upstate New York uh, as part of a security uh, team for uh, Indian Nation and uh, I just got sick of that and I wanted to be involved more in the veteran community and with just the community in general so my idea was to move out here to Denver, link up with some other veterans, and start volunteering. And it's been good uh past couple of weeks. I uh, worked with Hab- Habitat for Humanity, Impact Locally, which helps out with the homeless uh, in Denver area. And really trying to divulge more into the choke point and see how many veterans we can really help and kind of pay it forward the way it was to me.
0: Yeah, I was in Colorado uh, a month and a half ago, two months ago?
3: Nice. Yeah, I ju- I was in Fiji at that time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I got. Uh, I was an extra for some uh, survival show that's coming out soon, and
0: things didn't work out, but it's a good trip. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, yeah, I was actually in Denver um, only for a little bit. Uh, I went to the Denver Arts Museum. They had, like, a samurai exhibit. Yeah, I still didn't get a chance to see that. How was it? It was awesome. It was like a, like these really rich people own, like all this uh, armor and stuff from like, you know, different periods throughout the feudal era of Japan. Uh, so it was pretty cool. Um, so that that deployment that you were talking about, where you said things were done flawlessly, was that the same deployment that you and Paul were on?
2: Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the one, man.
0: And was that an Iraq deployment?
2: No, that was to Afghanistan.
0: Okay. And uh, c- can you share a story from that deployment uh, for the audience? <laughs> you want to talk
3: about the night that we ate the chicken and then uh, when we had that barricaded subject where Australia and uh, the other guy got the Bronze Star. Remember that one?
2: No, it's you know what? I forgot about that, man. We got gave a lot of good awards out for that mission. There were a lot of we got a lot of hairy missions, man.
3: Well, I think that was one of the three day missions, and then on the last night when we were cooking the chicken or well, the turkey uh, fireside before taking contact.
2: Oh, I remember that, man. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, we like. We had like a turkey dinner in the middle of Afghanistan in this giant castle compound. I mean, it was like, it was weird, man. It was like, I felt like Genghis Khan. You're looking at these giant, <laughs> these giant Himalayan mountains covered in snow, but it's hot where you are. You know, Doc's got a turkey on a spit. <laughs> Make you sure we're well fed. And uh, it, it was one of those things where like, you're sitting here in this house, this giant compound. You know, you're eating turkey dinner with your best buddies. You're arguably one of the worst places on the planet. But I couldn't have been happier. And as soon as the sun goes down, we're back out there fighting through ambushes. You know, I think uh, that night the we intercepted some enemy reports after that night. We killed 40, 50 guys uh, reported. So, I mean, it was some pretty gnarly fighting and yeah. it was weird I don't know how that whole experience was it's like one minute you're on one side of the country the next minute you're in a an aircraft you haven't heard of uh going to a place you didn't even know was in afghanistan uh <laughs> fighting people that aren't from afghanistan that you didn't even know existed you know uh by the hundreds sometimes by the thousands and it's just you and your rifle and 20 of your ranger buddies in the middle of the night, somewhere where nobody else in their right mind would ever be for any military objective. And that was basically, I don't know, that was every night, right, Chance?
3: Yeah, little little to no support as well. <laughs> yeah. I think what, for that mission, like, we had been out for about two days because I had to give you guys modafinil, which uh, for people that don't know, it, kind of knocks out your drive to want to fall asleep so it gives you your second win you know when we'd be up past 24 so hours um, and then I think conventional forces hadn't been in that area for like the last four years so it was pretty yeah. interesting like walking yeah. through valleys of just nothingness
2: that was one of the things you you get out there and you realize like this is literally foreign territory we just let somebody mass an army of a thousand dudes you know, foreign fighters from all over, military advisors from conflicts around the globe, but these aren't, uh, we really, it's my fifth deployment, so I, I knew who Rangers went after, I knew I knew the deal, we we're going after all the HVTs in the Afghanistan, I mean, we're the ones that, we got most of them, I think it's 95% of the HVTs in that war were uh, killed or captured by Rangers. So you know you're going after the bad guys, but when you get into these areas where, you know, CF and even SOF can't get in and you realize like the extent of their support network and how robust their supply chain is and their training doctrine is, you know, as good as, as American military training doctrine. I mean, this is it was, you know, it's one of those things that's it's incredibly illuminating and terrifying at the same time and all you got all you can do is your PCIs and your PCCs and check your buddy and bring water and get on the back of that Chinook and go. You know, it's – it was – I'm really glad I got to be a part of it. I'm really, really glad I lived through it. it, it
0: was, so you got – would you say in your experience um, from fighting, you know, like foreign – fight guys who are foreign to Afghanistan, those, you know, from Czechs, NEO, you know, wherever the hell they're from, right? Uh, were they – like, better fighters than, you know, let's say the Taliban or something like that?
2: Hell yeah. Generally, yeah. The, uh, the foreign fighters, I mean, they... They maneuver on <laughs> you. They, they would use really good uh, military tactics. I mean, if they weren't... Re- if, if none of their guys had a Ranger handbook, I'd be real surprised, you know, at least some of these foreign fighters. And we went up against Chechens, Uzbeks. We went up against guys from Africa, you know, hell, we there was a kid from a state university in the Midwest that ended up on our radar. We went and met yeah. him. So, you know, they're coming from all over the Afghans, uh, the, like the Taliban and stuff. I, I don't know. There were, in you know, 2009, I was with Nick Irving and Marja and that was Taliban city. You know, our Afghan counterparts were afraid to go in there with us. And, uh, so it kind of depends on where you were, what year it was. You know, but at that time, you know that year definitely. The, I think the foreign fighters were the, they were the ones bringing it on that deployment. But then again, I don't know. You know, we got IED makers that had been doing it for ten years, and they were wily and hard to capture. And you know, Chechen snipers that were basically running around like the jackal, assassinating people for ten or fifteen years after they'd already been in other conflicts uh, around the globe. So you know they're out there there's there's a mafia network in Afghanistan and those guys are absolutely ruthless and brutal you know you that's they're the kind of guys if you know you're fighting against them you're saving your last rounds for yourself and your buddy because they're gonna do bad things to you (laughs) you know so it's hard to say man but we definitely the the pipe hitters the guys that were ready to bring it and wanted to fight were the guys we were going after that deployment
0: so were the majority of your rotations into Afghanistan, or did you split them with Iraq?
2: All of my deployments were to Afghanistan, all six. What about you, James? You're we all on Yeah, both of mine were Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, I did one uh, Iraq, and then because it was a uh, special operations surge, so instead of our typical three month deployment, I think we ended up doing close to six for that last one, uh, Afghanistan.
0: So uh, were they? Was it being split up like third battalion was in was in Afghanistan and second battalion was in Iraq? Were they doing it that way, or it was just like that's just how it, it happened to go?
2: Well, we can't really say. Um,
0: okay, okay, yeah, that's fine, that's fine.
2: Yeah. No, we're, we, Rangers have been continuously deployed since October twenty fourth, two thousand and one. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're always there. We're always everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> In your favorite bar in your hometown. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: let's talk about the Choke Point uh, podcast a little bit. Uh, How long have you guys been around uh, with that?
3: Uh, It started up a little uh, sometime last year. Um, What it was, we, we started to realize how many resources were out there, but we as veterans didn't really know it. So in the military at choke point, me being a medic, it's a point that I establish, you know, for the injured to come to, and then I direct resources to that point to disseminate to the people that need it. So we wanted to do that on a larger scale and kind of add personality to it, uh, just to show that, you know, we're real people. These are the events that we're going to, the things that we're involved in. Um And uh, just to kind of highlight success stories, it's easy to fall into negativity and highlight on bad things. And uh, we kind of wanted to be a different side to that, to just get veterans together and bridge the gap between civilians and veterans. And then whatever resources are out there to connect those to our listeners and for friends of veterans and families
0: of veterans. That's pretty awesome. So is it all three of you guys uh, doing the podcast? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, Chance is kind of our PR man at the moment. Um, and then, you know, so the choke point is how we get the word out. Uh, we all like to contribute to it. We're trying to get more involved, but, you know, we're starting small businesses and transitioning from the military and trying to get in our feet. So progress has been a little bit slow, but you know, we're getting it.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Where do you guys uh, do your hosting for your for your uh, podcast?
3: Uh, right now, it's been kind of scattered. I think a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul and I were camping in uh, Colorado and did one, but mostly uh, just video podcasts that we've been hosting through YouTube.
2: Yeah, we, we kind of do them wherever we can. Uh, James and I live up, way up in the mountains. We don't have any service. Cause we're cavemen, so we... <laughs> And we'll go to the library. We'll go to one of uh, we, we're sitting by this two hundred year old barn on one of our farm leases right now. So that's that's a spot we like to go to, and you know, kind of reaffirms that we're doing the right thing because we're we're getting something good done. We're doing some work, but we're in a cool spot, and we're with our friends. So we'll do them anywhere.
0: Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so where can people go to find your podcast?
3: Uh, the website's all set up, so they can go to the choke point. Dot com and it has all our contact info and for anybody that wants to contribute or uh, be a guest, uh, all the info is there on the website.
0: Okay, so that's thechokepoint.com dot uh, You guys are also on social media as well. That's correct. Yep,
2: yeah. yeah, that's right. I'll, you can follow me at BillyBadass three seven five on Instagram, cr one three seven five on Facebook. Um, I've got I've got Twitter, but. I don't
4: know. I think it's CR one three seven five. I don't tweet a whole lot. Yeah, I'm just a Ranger Web on Instagram. You follow me there.
2: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. check out out my fan page CR one three seven five. I've got a a book coming out next year. We got a great author. He does the Tom Clancy Op Center books. His name's George Calderisi. He's an old Navy captain. Used to fly helicopters, so he's kind of the other side of the Ranger coin. You know. If you know anything about Rangers, they love helicopter guys. So, uh, really excited about that. He's an awesome author. He's an awesome guy in general, and that's going to be coming from Saint Martin's Press. So, awesome. pending it. If- yeah, thank you.
0: And uh, do you have like a release date yet, or are you still working on that?
2: No, we're still working on it. Um, we just started the manuscript, so it'll probably be about six months before we're finished, and then you know, editing takes some time. Or we're shooting for uh, probably March, April sometime around there next year
0: That's awesome man. yeah thank you and chance what's your uh... what's your handles on social media uh...
3: think find me at chance in action on instagram it's mostly what i use and then uh... the choke point on instagram for the podcast
0: okay great man you know it was great having you guys on um... you know i've been following you guys for a while now on social media and things like that um, so maybe I can get on your podcast, man. We could reverse roles a little bit. Oh, that'd be awesome. We'd love to have you. Yeah,
2: that would be great, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. And, and um, you know, maybe I can get get a few guys on there as well. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it was great talking to you guys, man. I'm, I'm glad that you guys came on. Um, you know, it was great to hear uh, that you guys are doing well with the farming and all of that stuff thank you thank you for having us
4: yeah thanks for having us on
0: man yeah we appreciate it no worries guys all right we'll see you peace Take care. that concludes my interview with the rangers from the choke point podcast Uh, they're a bunch of good guys uh and it's you know it's always good to see and hear about guys who went through their struggle and they've been able to find themselves again uh you know through whatever means it is and Uh, You know, it's always a good story to hear. So that concludes the episode. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. And the second account that I have on Instagram is globalrecon underscore Inc. My Twitter account is IG Recon. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Just search globalrecon. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a rating, comment, Download see you guys in a couple of days.